Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet Megan Miranda, a New York Times bestselling author whose latest book, The Girl from Whitta Hills, releases today. June 23rd, 2020. R.L. Stein, bestselling author of Goosebumps and Fear Street, says of this book, Sleepwalking is creepy. You're asleep, but you're walking through the night like the living dead. I knew when I started The Girl from Whitta Hills, I was in for some shivers, but I had no idea the terrors that were in store. Megan starts the show with a reading from the prologue of the book, where we learn about the girl who survived, the girl who held on, and the girl who had not been that girl for a long time. I was the girl who survived, the girl who held on, the girl you prayed for, or at least pretended to pray for, thankful most of all that it wasn't your own child lost down there in the dark. And after, I was the miracle, the sensation, the story. The story was what people wanted, and oh, it was a good one. Proof of humanity and hope and the power of the human spirit. After coming so close to tragedy, the public reaction bordered on rapturous when it wasn't. Whether from joy or pure shock, the result was the same. I was famous for a little while, the subject of articles, interviews, a book. It became a news story revisited after a year, then five, then ten. I knew now what happened when you turned your story over to someone else, how you became something different, twisted to fit the confines of the page, something to be consumed instead. That girl is frozen in time with her beginning, middle, and end. Victim, endurance, triumph. It was a good story, a good feeling, a good ending. Fade to black. As if when the daily news moved on and the articles ended and the conversations turned, it was all over. As if it weren't just beginning. There was a time when I knew what they were after. Reaching back to that cultural touch point, whenever someone would say, The girl from Widow Hills, remember? That sudden rush of fear and hope and relief all at once. A good feeling. I haven't been that girl in a long time. Megan Miranda writes psychological suspense for adults and young adults. She's the New York Times bestselling author of All the Missing Girls, The Perfect Stranger, and The Last House Guest. She's also written several books for young adults, including The Safest Lies, Fragments of the Lost, and Come Find Me. She grew up in New Jersey, graduated from MIT, and lives in North Carolina with her husband and two children. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by OrthoCarolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Megan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. And welcome remotely because uh, we're we're here in mid March uh, in advance of the release of your book in June, which is going to 
release the same day, hopefully, that this podcast release, uh, assuming the world doesn't fall apart before then. How, how are you doing during this time? We're doing all right. Um, you know, I've got my, I'm thankful that I already work from home. Um, my kids are doing their online schooling right outside my office right now. Um, so we're taking it day by day. How about yourself? We're doing fine. We're, uh, I'm learning to podcast remotely and uh, catch up on some projects that uh, I, I haven't, <laughs> haven't gotten to in a while. Um, so your kids are behaving themselves in homeschool next door while you're doing this? <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I heard the joke about the kids that got suspended for for fighting from homeschool. You know, yeah. <laughs> are your kids are your kids getting along? <laughs> they yeah. are. They're pretty. They're both in middle school too, so they're pretty. You know, self sufficient with their schoolwork. Yeah. So, um, you know, I don't know. Months from now, how many novels that come out are going to have a coronavirus pandemic uh, plot twist to them? But this does seem like uh, just a bad. Uh, beginning for a novel, right? I mean, we've got uh, all this angst in the world and loss and death and everything. And you write uh, suspense, psychological suspense. uh, But you didn't start in a place that I think of a novelist starting. You went to school at MIT, right? Yeah. Isn't that that like a science school? (laughs) It is. Yeah. I went to school for biology. Yeah. Yeah. And Afterwards, you went into biotech, and then you became a science teacher. That doesn't sound like, to me, the most direct path to writing fast-moving psychological thrillers. Yeah, you know, I looking back, um, I know it sounds like it's it's it does seem like a sort of meandering path, but looking back, I can kind of see you know a path that made sense to get where I am right now. Um, I grew up reading books. I'm, I've always been a huge mystery reader. My mom was a huge mystery reader. And so that was sort of what we had in our house all the time, mystery and suspense. Um, and I went to school for biology. I didn't know anybody who was a writer when I was growing up. Um, but I always wanted to keep doing it on the side. Um, but the truth is I did give it up for a while. Um, you know, I think I was in school and I was always sort of saying, well, I'm busy with school right now. And then after that, I was busy with my job and busy with kids. And um, it was sort of my third career. But looking back, it every one of my careers sort of informed my path to getting there. Um, I started work in biotech when I lived in Boston. When we moved to North Carolina, I was a high school science teacher. And my first books that I published were young adult suspense that had a weird science angle to them. So it sort of pulled on my different careers and inspired what I was writing about. Um, But it did take until that point where I really said to myself, you know, if this is my passion and what I always say I want to do and I love to do, why am I not taking a real shot at it? Um, And kind of gave myself the goal of finishing something because I would start things. And when it got like 50 pages into that hard part where I had to figure out what was actually going on, I would put things aside. Um, So kind of that huge hurdle for me was proving that I could finish um, something and reach the end. And from there, I've sort of transitioned to um, doing this full time. Um, Started when my kids were much younger and now obviously they're 12 and 13. That's, that's great. I, um, I know exactly what you're talking about because I practiced law for 35 years and I, I, and I would come home and write these, start writing something and then get busy again and find it, you know, a year later, (laughs) about 30 pages in, you know? So, uh, it wasn't until I said, okay, I'm going to finally finish this damn thing that, uh, I got to my first book. So I understand what you're coming. So did you start with young adult because you were sort of in that space, you were teaching high school and you were around, kids and and seeing what kids are going through is that what kind of got you started in that that uh, field first I think so you know in hindsight I think that definitely makes sense I was reading I read a lot of young adult as well I still do I read sort of half and half um young adult and adult suspense I really enjoy them both um and I think you know when I when I was thinking back to my own time in high school and then teaching from the other side of the desk even though they were very different situations and different times in the world and you know there was different technology I felt like there was something really universal at the heart of that experience um, with the same sort of hopes and dreams um, kind of for yourself and the things you're going through and um, I could read a young adult novel and just almost be back in that moment in time immediately. There's sort of this immediacy to it, um, this coming of age element to it. And those were um, 
so I was kind of drawn to that idea of seeing it from both sides, going through it, and then as a teacher, kind of seeing it removed. Mm. Um, and that's sort of where my first my first ideas started. Yeah, and, and we're going to talk now about the transition from young adult to adult books. I'm looking, the, the audience can't see here because this is audio, but I can see you in this remote podcast thing we're doing. And behind you on your wall is a framed uh, copy of the, the the cover of The Last House Guest, which was that, that was your first adult. No, so this was actually my most recent adult. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm sorry. All the Missing Girls was the first one, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's got to be hanging somewhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's actually not <laughs> hanging up. This was um, a lovely gift from Reese's Book Club when it was the August okay. selection, The Last House Guest. So that's why that's... All right. Okay. Well, got off on a tangent there. But anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll circle back here. Um so this idea of writing young adult and then writing adult, one of the things I read somewhere about you is that you're fascinated with this idea of, you know, something that happens when you're younger, you know, how does it inform your future? Um, you do that in the book we're going to talk about, you know, on today's episode. Um, but did that help with your transition from young adult to adult to take these ideas, these things that were happening to young people and then saying, Oh, I wonder how that's going to affect them 20, 30 years from now. Definitely. That was definitely a huge part of the transition. And it's a theme that I keep going back to over and over again in my adult books. And I think it probably is something that's influenced by me starting in young adult fiction. Um, I was writing all these stories about these. I mean, my young adult books were also suspense and I was writing these stories about these really huge things that happen to people when they're 16 or 17 years old. And those stories are very much how they put those events into context and they're experiencing it for the first time and they're coming out the other end. And the book sort of ends at that point in time. And I was sort of thinking as time went on, how does this really guide and influence their life going forward? Are these events things that they want to move past? Um, mm-hmm. Do they kind of accept them as, as part of their core experience or do they want to leave the past behind? And so that's sort of, I think, you know, a very literal theme in The Girl from Widow Hills. Um, and it is a theme in each of my adult books as well, like these, these huge events and how you are perceived by things that happen or things you've gone through when you're younger. Um, they're people who either leave their small town behind or choose to remain there and how that affects. And I think, you know, the theme is also, can you ever really escape your past or does it yeah. always kind of catch up with you? Have you always been uh, interested in this uh, sort of creepy crawly suspense kind of thing? Because I'm looking at your book cover for all the missing girls for which you got a lot of, you know, great reviews and Los Angeles review of books, the publishers weekly, you know, talked about uh, your fiendishly plotted thrillers and, you know, all this kind of thing. But the cover, I mean, it's a Ferris wheel and there's these dark clouds kind of coming. It looks like a storm's coming in almost, you know, and that doesn't bode well for whoever's (laughs) on the Ferris wheel or nearby or anything like that. So have you you always been drawn to, you said you read mysteries as a child and you read suspense. Uh, Is that something that uh, keeps you awake at night? Yes. I I love suspense and sort of the atmospheric um, suspense of, you know, the ominous tone, like something is coming. Um, so I've always sort of been drawn to those types of stories as opposed to maybe like the jump out and scare um, yeah. <laughs> side of things. Um, but I do, I'm, I'm very, you know, I've always kind of gravitated toward those. I think there's something really revealing about suspense and thrillers as well, where, you know, everything is kind of put under this time pressure. Um, and so we can kind of think about, well, what I would do in that situation um, or what I, what I think I would do in that situation. But I think thrillers really kind of expose that um, split second, you know, what do what does a person do in that situation? Mm. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about your, your new book, the one that uh, is coming out today, um, The Girl from Widow Hills. Do you come up with that title before or after you write your book? I mean, did that did that come to you early in the process or this one um did come to me early in the process, which is very rare because most of my titles, it's a very long process after I finish the drafts. Um, they mm. change. Um, they change as I revise, but this was very soon in the story because that's what the main character was known as in her past. Um, and the new story was 
they would always talk about the girl from Widow Hills. And um, she's sort of been known as that her entire life. And that kind of stuck from the very beginning. Yeah. And this celebrity status is not the kind of celebrity status that we all aspire to, right? Because you, no. you, she went she went through a, a horrific event uh, for this uh, story to, to unfold. And I believe you told me that you were inspired uh, to write this book by the story of baby Jessica, the, and also a, a cave rescue. I think baby Jessica, she was the one that fell down the well. Is that right? And then was trapped for several days and they were trying to get her out and the whole world was watching and, and you had this yeah. idea. I wonder, I wonder what, 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 what that, that little girl's thinking you know, 30 years later. Yeah. Yeah. And that's sort of, I mean, I wasn't necessarily inspired by the actual events, but I was thinking about, um, the stories that really stick with public consciousness. And I remember maybe uh, a decade ago, um, I was watching the news and something came up where they said, um, like baby Jessica getting married or something related to that. And uh, it really brought me back to that. I mean, I was a child what, during the baby Jessica story and I just was like, wow, baby Jessica, I remember that like decades mm-hmm. later and, you know, remember that name that she was known by and, um, that kind of stuck with me. And then a few summers ago, um, I remember just, you know, how invested we all were in, watching the Thai cave rescue. Um, I remember my family and I were at a family wedding and we were all watching it, um, and texting each other during this rescue and sort of how emotionally invested, um, people from across the world become. And so I just started, you know, it kind of goes with the themes of a lot of my stories, you know, what happens if a character doesn't want to be part of the story that they are known as, um, you know, 10, 20, or 30 years later. And that's where the idea for The Girl from Widow Hills was born. Yeah, because the the publicity might never cease. It might come back on the anniversary and somebody wants to talk about it again. Maybe they don't want to talk about it. Maybe they're suffering some trauma from it. Maybe there are people that are, but it seems most of us might think, oh, that's a happy event. They got saved, but you're a novelist and you're thinking about plot twists and you're thinking, oh, how can I turn this into something really suspenseful years later? It's going to come back to halt them, right? Right. I think you're always, you know, especially when you're writing suspense and thrillers, you're thinking, okay, well, how can I take this to sort of the worst case scenario? (laughs) Where, you know, how can we go in that direction instead of just, oh, you know, obviously it seemed at that moment a very happy story. um, And it was, she was rescued, but um, it was obviously a very traumatic event for her um, at the start of the story. And so to have to bring that up um, every time they want to is something she really wants to leave her past behind. Um, and changes her name. Yeah. Okay. So um, we all know as novelists that we're taught that there should be an inciting incident, right, uh, in in the novel to get us to get us hooked early. And so let's let's provide a little foundation here for the book before we go to our next read. Here, the the main character protagonist is Arden Mayner. She was just six years old when she was swept away while sleepwalking during a terrifying rainstorm, and drum roll against all odds. <laughs> she was found alive, clinging to that storm drain. Um, and here's the cool part. Fame followed, but there were fans and creeps and stalkers. And every year the anniversary brought them and the media attention back. And she just wanted to be away from it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so you've got this story you're telling in present day time, which really, I read the book pretty quickly. It moves fast. That's, that's good. You want to keep the pages turning, but you got to figure out as an author how you're going to tell this backstory without slowing down the action, right? Right. And, and you used a technique in here that I found uh, very interesting. Um, you use these flashbacks, um, but not in the in in the actual either through someone talking or the character remembering it in their head. You used it through these transcripts and news reports. And so every now and then we'd get a one pager, right. That you would drop in the book and it would take us back in time and tell us some of her story without having to divert attention away from the story in the present day. How did that idea come to you? Yeah, it was a little bit like you were saying, um, you know, I was thinking, how am I going to make um, the audience understand, you know, how huge a story this was and how it escalated over time and what that rescue was like. And, you know, it was such a huge story that you couldn't really dilute it into, you know, a two paragraph explanation. Um, 
And I also didn't want to slow down the story. So I started thinking, well, what if I show it with these transcripts and different types of transcripts um, that kind of talk about, you know, what it was like 20 years earlier during the search and during the rescue. And then that sort of took on a life of its own where I figured that these snippets between every chapter could sort of um, create their own story arc. And Mm, so it's kind of working with both at the same time. It's it's kind of a parallel story. You're teasing out, you know, what was happening in real time 20 or 30 years ago. And you're also telling the current day story where she's struggling with the things that are happening as the anniversary is approaching. Just a few more things before you read that. Um, Arden, the main character, she's working in healthcare. She has an elderly neighbor who has a past, and we don't know what that past is. She's now in a small town. She's actually in a remote part of that town, kind of far from any support group, I think, except for the neighbor, who, again, is the strange guy who lives next door. Um, Her support group is thin, but it comes from her medical community. Her mother is no longer in her life. Uh, She doesn't want her in her life. Her past is mysterious, too. And the man who saved her, he's got a troubled past. And, uh, yeah, so let's do this, if you don't uh, mind. Let's do some of those flashbacks so we can give a sense of how some of the story. You've got three little flashbacks you're going to read in a row here. And each, each one has a title to it, so we'll be able to figure out what kind of flashback it is. So, Anything you want to say to set these up? You just want to dive in. Um, yeah, I think I think kind of covered it, but I'll I'll dive right in. They're sort of the way it's structured is that they are um, little transcripts that are between each of the chapters, um, and they are dated as well, so that you can see kind of where they were in the story. Transcript from press conference, October seventeenth, two thousand. We are asking for the public's assistance in locating six-year-old Arden Maynor, who has been missing since either late last night or early this morning. Brown hair, brown eyes, three feet six inches, and approximately 38 pounds. She was last seen in her bedroom on Warren Street outside the town center of Widow Hills, wearing blue pajamas. Anyone with information is urged to call the number posted on the screen. Captain Morgan Howard, Widow Hills Police Department. Transcript from Live Report with Gary Simon, Channel 9 Meteorologist, Cook County, October 18, 2000. What we had here was a perfect combination of factors. The ground has been saturated from the record-breaking rainfall in September. The ground is like a sponge to an extent, but at some point, it just won't absorb anymore. Monday night into the early hours of Tuesday, we had a very slow-moving storm, and the system just sat on top of us for hours. We had over two inches of rain come down between 2 and 4 a.m., It doesn't sound like much, but six inches of rushing water can lift a car. How much do you think it would take for a small child? Transcript from interview with Dr. Paul Parsons, director of Long Branch Sleep Clinic, October 19, 2000. It's a common occurrence in children. Most will outgrow it. For parents, if you witness or suspect that your child is sleepwalking, there are some things you can do to protect them. Put a bell on their door, something to wake you. Try to limit the amount of furniture or fragile items in the room with them so they won't accidentally get hurt. What happened to the Maynard girl was an accident, a tragic accident. And sometimes, despite our best intentions, accidents happen anyway. Most times an episode passes with no incident. There are, of course, other disorders to be aware of, episodes that veer more actively and dangerously than merely walking in your sleep. True sleepwalking mostly tends to mimic basic things you've already done. But if your child seems to be acting out their dreams, running, fighting, that's not sleepwalking. That's evidence of another type of disorder. That's when you should be concerned. That's when they could be a danger to themselves or others. Okay, as I said, I enjoyed uh, the fact that we had two parallel stories going on here. And we got got these little segments teased out to us uh, over time. And while you're doing that, things are happening in present day. For example, she is beginning uh, to reflect about the events of many years ago and she carries that with her and uh, she's even thinking she might need some you know psychiatric help or maybe a therapist to help her and so she's in and out of that while this is going on a lot of outlining in this process or not do you kind of (laughs) not at first I actually um, I don't do a lot of plotting up front. Um, I usually start with character and premise, and I really have to write my way into a story to get to know who my characters are, you know, what 
they're fighting against, what their fears are. And the plot and the character sort of develop almost um, in opposition to one another. Um, and so I really have to get to know the character before I can do any of the, the plot. Um, and so once I got further into the story, then I would step back and make sure everything is plotted out very carefully with the clues and the turning points. But um, my first drafts are very much discovery drafts. And so I do my outlines after I kind of do that entire first draft. Yeah, I think I've heard that technique of outlining after the first draft and then using that to help inform what you cut. But in terms of these flashbacks, did you write that out as part of your messy first draft and then come up with the idea to go back and create these transcripts? Or was it was that what you started with from the beginning, the separation of the two stories? Um, I wrote about 50 pages before I had that kind of idea. Um, and then I went back and added them in. So it was pretty early on in the process. Um, but I wasn't necessarily sure where each of them was going to fall. So certain things kind of moved around to to work hand in hand with the present day plot as well so that, you know, you, you get the sleepwalking flashback at the same time that in the present, the main character is beginning to sleepwalk again as she starts to feel that um, people have found her. Yeah. And so that kind of brings us to this next read because um, as we're learning about her past and we're learning about her present, we, we understand that she's going through the, these discomforting times uh, in the evening. She's alone in her house, living out uh, outskirts of town, uh, kind of a wooded area behind her and next to her. And you've got this scene here um, where she stumbles across a body in her backyard while sleepwalking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's read that because that kind of wakes us up in the, in the story here, which kind of, then, then you begin to wonder. So uh, anytime you're ready. The sound of a chime jolted me from sleep. I reached out an arm on instinct in the direction of my bedside table, but my knuckles hit on something rough, too close. A chill, my eyes adjusting to a dim light, trying to orient myself. And then I heard the rest, the crickets, the leaves rustling overhead. That dim light between the bushes coming from Rick's house. Something chimed again, and I followed the noise, looking down. It was the noise of an alert on my phone, a missed call. I must have brought my phone with me and dropped it. It was buried in shadow now, hand at the tree again, the rough bark of the trunk, but something felt sticky, like tar. I held my hands close to my face. My palms were too dark, like they were coated in dirt. I rubbed my fingers together, and they caught. This time, the phone started ringing, and I moved closer, hands held in front of me to block the jagged branches, tripping over a log before I reached the sound. Knees in the hard dirt, my palms stinging. I placed my hand on the log to right myself, but it was too soft. A snake, my first instinct. I scrambled away before my mind even had time to process. But the shadow hadn't moved. The phone kept ringing. I pushed myself to standing, stepping closer. I nudged the shadow with my bare foot, feeling the familiar roughness of denim this time. And then silence. My head swam in a sudden rush of understanding. I moved the branches of the bushes aside to be sure. The shape of a torso arms, the back of a head, a man. A sound escaped my throat. I stepped back, closed my eyes, took a breath. Sometimes when I wake, the two worlds combine, the dream and reality, an echo of one and the other. And so it's possible the body is a figment and I can walk it back, retrace my steps, climb backward into bed, and in the morning there will be nothing here, just a lingering sense of doom, a shudder as I walk to my car, the ghost of a memory but it's the wind that made me sure, moving the blades of grass in a symphony over my toes, something greater than my imagination, a chaos beyond the reach of my mind. My eyes shot open, burning in the night wind. How long had I been standing here? How long ago had this happened? I looked down at my hands again, understanding without seeing. They were red. Behind me, the front door gaped open across my yard, a darkness inside. But when I started running, I instinctively headed the other way, passing the body in the yard, through the tree line, tripping over the hedges as I ran for Rick's. All right, so here's sort of the problem now because she can't remember some things, right? She doesn't know 
why she was out in the backyard, how she got there, whether she was there when this body was alive or not. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. And then the uh, the police get involved and uh, start investigating, asking her questions that she doesn't really want to talk about because uh, she's got a certain part of her past uh, that she doesn't want to share. And uh, she really doesn't want people to know who she is, right? Because she doesn't want to bring that fame back on her again. Okay. All right. Yeah. I think it's kind of twofold at that part too, because she doesn't want her past. She doesn't want to reveal who she was um, so that the attention doesn't come back on her again, which she's been trying to escape. And also at this point, if everybody knows the story of what happened to her back then, and she's famous for an accident while sleepwalking, um, and suddenly there's a body in her yard, I think she is also afraid of what that might imply. Yeah. We don't know who that body is or how that body might be connected to her present or to her past, right? Not at this point anyway. Yeah. Okay. So uh, listeners, when we come back from our uh, short break, uh, we're going to, we're going to keep going down this uh, rabbit trail here to find out what's happening because some things are starting to, to heat up in the book. Uh, we're going to do the writing life segment. Uh, we've got a final read as well. So uh, please stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'd like to extend a personal invitation to you to check out our Patreon page. It's a, it's a place where people can support the podcast, but it's also a place where we give back uh, exclusive content to those who do. We've got a lot of episodes, more than 20-some hours of, of content on there where I have conversations with authors about uh, the writing craft and their writing lives, and they read some of their work as well. You can find that at uh, Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, all one word. There's also a lot of free content uh, on that site. We had a had a read-in in the April time period that when we recorded this episode, authors contributed their work. I put that up for free. I used the site to do that. But if you are a, a supporting member, you get a private RSS feed and you're able to listen to those uh, free episodes on that feed as well. So don't have to join. I uh, appreciate you listening, whether you become a member or not. But uh, if you'd like to take a look and uh, maybe consider supporting the podcast, sure would appreciate it. Let's get back to this interesting episode with Megan Miranda to try to find out a little bit more about what happens to the girl from Whitta Hills. So, hey, listeners, I'm back here with uh, Megan Miranda. She's the author of The Girl from Whitta Hills and a number of other uh, psychological suspense uh, books for young adults and adults. Uh, so, Megan, I'm looking at the cover of the book here. Um, at the top, it says she was rescued but never safe. So she was running from her past for a long time, right? And it's she catch- was. It's catching up to her now, right? Yeah, yeah. she's moved um, a few times. I think her family moved early on to kind of escape the media attention, um, but she was still sort of known in high school and was dealing with that and decided to really go for a fresh start. So when she um, she changed her name before she left for college, moved states and really believed she had a fresh start from there. Mm. And the cover, do you ever get any uh, input on the cover? Because I'm looking at the cover, you got a lot of color. It looks like some bubbles and then some hair kind of strands flying. I guess that sort of is emblematic of uh, someone being trapped in water, maybe? Uh, yeah. Um, I I did get to see a few um, potential designs for the cover. I am not a very visual person, so I usually don't okay. have like a great idea. But the cover department um, at Simon & Schuster is just amazing and fantastic. And they really capture, I think, the feel of the book and also something very emblematic um, at the core of the story. So in All the Missing Girls, that Ferris wheel that you were talking about earlier is, is something very thematically important to the story. And um, in The Girl from Widow Hills, you see um, the, the beginning you know, the story of what she's known for, she's swept away during a storm, um, kind of trapped in the system of pipes during this flooding. And um, that sort of captured the idea that is captured on the cover as well. But I think the cover also matches um, my previous books. Um, in, yeah, so, so, so the, both in t- terms of the tone of the color and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So, so when they're together, it might be a, a slightly different shade, but when they're together, you say, oh, yeah, I can see that brand there. I can see something that, that ties together. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're, we're at the 20th anniversary, uh, and 
you know, she's becoming a bit paranoid because she can't remember certain things, but some, some things are coming back to her, but she can't necessarily put the pieces together, you know, and we've got this scene here. Um, something happens in town and with her paranoia, she thinks someone might be following her. Any, anything else you want to say to set this reading up? Yeah. So, you know, at the start um, of the story, she knows the 20 year anniversary is approaching and she knew at the 10 year anniversary, um, it really kind of kicked off a whole new wave of attention. And she begins to feel that people might have found her um, and might be watching her. Um, and that is the next reading. Should I just go ahead? Go ahead. Okay. The 20 year anniversary was less than two months away. Would there be more media coverage, regardless of whether they tracked me down? Was it still of public interest all these years later? Have a good day, Olivia, the clerk said, pulling my attention. My ID was in his outstretched hand. I slid it back into my wallet, then peered over my shoulder again, but the man was gone. Thanks, I said to the clerk, keeping my head down as I strode for the automatic exit doors. He was there, outside, waiting leaning against a blue car parked next to mine, unwrapping on the hood of his car a breakfast sandwich that didn't seem like it had come from the store. Hey, he said, all nonchalant, taking a bite, taking his time. The lot was otherwise empty. I unlocked the door, but kept the keys in my hand, an old instinct rising. He chewed and swallowed, pointing his sandwich at me. I know you, he said. Don't think so, I said. He had the air of a journalist, if not the look, not the clothes and not the car from what I was accustomed to, but the way of casually lingering, pretending he hadn't been waiting just for me. Olivia, right? I was already shutting the driver's side door, mentally working through the moves to escape, tallying the seconds to get away. The time to start my car and accelerate out of the lot versus the time it would take him to do the same and follow. I didn't second guess myself. I'd been born with a healthy dose of self-preservation, and I'd learned to trust my gut. In my rush to leave, I didn't give him another glance. Couldn't say what he looked like, if asked, other than guy, white, average height and build. Perhaps he'd known my name to start, or perhaps he'd just overheard the clerk inside. Whatever he was after, I didn't have to speak. I knew that by now. But how easily he could topple everything I'd built the comfort of anonymity, all that I'd run from in Widow Hills. Here, the scars, just scars. Surgery after an accident, I always said, and that wasn't a lie. My name was my legal name now. I stuck to the truth. Moved here from Ohio for college. Fell out of touch with my family. Came into some money when I was younger. None of these things were lies. People tended to fill in the blanks however they wanted. It was not my job to correct them. Okay, so she gets the sense that this person knows her, maybe not from her present, but from her past, and it's starting to creep her out a little bit. Uh, you, you mentioned in here that she's got this story she sticks to, fell out of touch with her family, came into some money when she was younger. That kind of informs the plot twists as well. And We start to maybe think the fact that she came into some money because people were contributing uh, to the ba- to to her fund to take care of her and her mother after this horrific accident when she was a child, we start to think, okay, is there somebody who's upset with her because she came into this money? Is there somebody upset with her because of her fame? Is somebody connected to to everything that happened? Uh, who is it, right? And she doesn't and she doesn't know because she can't necessarily remember everything either, right? Right. I mean, it happened when she was six years old. And um, I think it was a very traumatic event and she hasn't wanted to revisit it for so long so that now she feels 20 years later, even if she wanted to, she can't really pull those pieces to mind. Mm. All right. So this is a good time to sort of jump into our writing life segment. Uh, since writing is now a career for you, Megan, you've, you've made that uh, switch uh, very effectively. Uh, I assume you have some kind of routine. <laughs> I do. Like, okay. Yeah. yeah. Talk, about, talk about that. Yeah. Routine is very helpful for me. I'm somebody who strives on structure. Um, and so, you know, when my kids were younger, I was mostly writing at night. Um, I would 
put them to bed when they were one and three, like at 6.30 p.m. And they would they would go to bed. They didn't nap anymore, but they would go to bed. And that was sort of my, you know, well, it wasn't really 6.30. It was like 7, right. 7.30. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, get in bed. Was, get, get in bed. I got to yeah. write the scary yeah. story. You know? <laughs> or I'm going to so, read you a scary story if you don't get in bed, right? Right, right. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, but my, my structure has sort of changed um, over the years. So my first two books I wrote primarily in the evenings, and then I would sort of edit during free time during the day. Um, now I have very structured work hours during the day. My kids are in school, or they had been going to school out of the house until recently. Yeah, until recently. Um, so I, you know, I, I really try to separate my work hours from my home hours. Um, beforehand, I would be taking my laptop around with me, um, and that was not... Uh, ideal for me. I felt I wasn't really fully focused on either. So now I really try to separate the hours um, at the end of this, you know, the day, which is like 3.30 p.m. for me. I leave my laptop in my office and close that door and kind of venture out um, to the rest of my life. But I do, I do write every day um, for the most part, or if I'm not writing, I'm editing or I'm researching. So I am putting in my work hours, even if I'm not I'm necessarily writing my first draft. I stick very um, strongly to my work hours. Yeah. So are you the kind of author that you've got such a schedule that even though you're in the heat of the moment, you're really cranking on this particular scene, if it's 3.30, you'll stop and then come back to it later? Or do you get drawn in to where you are and keep writing? I mean, I usually will stop, especially because usually that's when my kids are coming into the house. Okay. So yeah, it's yeah. sort of like a, it's sort of a, a good stopping point, And I right. kind of need to stop at that point anyway. So I actually don't mind that because I'm really excited to get back to it the next day. Yeah, good um, point. Sometimes stopping in the middle of a scene isn't a bad thing for me because I kind of know exactly what I'm going to pick up the next day and can kind of start the day with a good writing session. Um, sometimes when I finish a scene and because I don't do a lot of plotting, I'm not sure what happens next. Um, that's a harder start to the next day where I'm trying to read through what I've already done um, and think through things. So I, I don't, I don't mind that. Kind of yeah. stopping no, I've heard it's a good technique to stop when you're going well. Uh, because then you have something to look forward to and pick up, you know, when you come back. So when you're in your day, so you go to your office, uh, do you divide it up? Do you focus on, uh, say, the research part of something and then the writing part of something and then the publicity part of something? Do you divide that up in your in your process? Or do you just kind of put the research at the beginning of the book and then when you start writing, you just start writing? I mean, I, I do. It kind of depends on the day. I, I don't necessarily say every day, well, I'm going to write from these hours and then I'm going to research for these hours. It really is dependent on what's most necessary each day. Um, mm -hmm. I do like to do the writing first if I can. Um, a lot of times I'll do my emails kind of first thing, maybe before I sit down and get into a writing groove. Yeah. And then, and then try not to peek back at that until maybe lunch break, um, I'll kind of do things that aren't, you know, the full, fully needing creative, creative focus, um, during like a lunch hour. Um, but it really depends on the day. It really does. So, you know, you started out and just, you wanted to write, uh, you want to do this kind of in your spare time, then you convert it over. When you made that switch, it puts a little pressure on to put something out, you know, each year, right. To kind of get the next thing going. Um, some authors have said they struggle with that, you know, that, uh, you know, because it actually ramps up the pressure. H how did it work for you? Does it, does it provide you with some extra incentive? Does it keep you disciplined? Uh, do you look forward to that? Uh, do you start on the same day each year with your new book? <laughs> <laughs> I don't start on the same day. Um, and I'd say the process is different for each book, but I, I like having like a deadline, even if it's not an external deadline given to me, I like to try to set them for myself. Um, especially because I think, you know, a lot of my work is after the first draft, um, being able to get out a first draft to then make sure I know, you know, what's the right way I wanted to tell the story. Um, what's the right plot twists and, and plot arc for this story. A lot of that work happens after. So I do try 
to get my first draft. Um, mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. kind of sticks to a schedule there. And I usually start very quickly after I finish my previous book. And it's usually because I get the idea usually for the next book when I'm in the middle of the book I should be working on. And I think it's because middles are the most difficult part for me. So I'm always thinking of like the bright, shiny idea um, waiting for me. And so that's sort of sitting in the back burner of my mind for a while. And then when I finish a book, I I sort of am excited to, to dive into that new idea and see where it takes me. Yeah. So none of these are a series, right? You jump in with a new character each time, right? I mean, you pick a... I do. I, one time, my first book, um, which is Young Adult, has um, a companion, which came out a few years later, but it's a different character's point of view. Okay. And you, you've told me when we were talking earlier that you like to write character before plot. Um, so do these characters, uh, you know just come visit you in the night and introduce themselves to you? How do, how do you find your characters? I think it's a process. Um, I, you know, for, for the girl from Widow Hills, it was this idea of a character who um, was part of this, you know, huge media story, a huge phenomenon in her past, and who didn't want to be part of that story as she grew up. And that's sort of the core I start with. Um, and then I find that that defines a lot of, um, their character traits, but I have to really write my way into it. So, you know, Olivia in this story, she is not very forthcoming. And so because of that, because she doesn't want to reveal who she used to be, I think it's, it puts limitations on her current relationships. She has a hard time trusting other people and opening up. Um, and so that really informed her character. She's trying to make these long lasting friendships and relationships that she hasn't um, had the ability to do in the past. Um, And you talked about earlier how she is in this house that does seem sort of in the middle of nowhere, and she only has her one neighbor that she knows well. Um, And I think that's because for her, safety, she views safety as more of um, being anonymous and being in this place where she is alone. And that's something that she's gravitated towards, that she's always found solace and safety in. Um, and those are sort of the, the building blocks I use to begin. And then, like I said, the the story um, kind of works in hand in hand with the character development going forward. Yeah. So it sounds like you're doing some what if for the plot twist to come to you. You know, what if there was a girl who got swept away in a storm drain and 20 years later, there's somebody following her around and her past is coming back to her. And what if, and what if, and what if, and that, does that inform your plot twists uh, to, as you work the story forward? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's, there's some twists. I mean, when I say I don't plot, I do, um, I do have reveals in mind. And so I try to plan things by when certain reveals are going to happen. And so um, I knew several of them that I was working towards, and they are, like you said, kind of you ask yourself, what if? Um, and I go from there, but I leave myself a lot of wiggle room in the process of getting there, and then those decisions sort of inform the things that happen later on in the story. Hmm. Yeah, and you don't know um, the ending of your story when you start, right? Do you, no, I And you enjoy that? <laughs> I do. Yeah. <laughs> I Trying really to fi- figure out what's going to happen. Get, get, I used to tell people this. Uh, I'd come home at night writing my first book, and my wife would say, "Where are you going?" I said, "Well, I'm going to my study to find out what happens next." You know? <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> yeah. I, for me, that's kind of the most fun part. I mean, as a reader of mysteries, I always love trying to figure out the puzzle pieces, and and for you know the writer in me, I'm sort of crafting the puzzle. And I think of the first half of a book as discovering what the puzzle pieces are, and then how I'm going to put them together in the later stages. Um, And obviously, then do a lot of rewriting after I reach the end and and know all the different pieces. But I write my books um, first person. So um, I like to be able to connect to my character who doesn't know who did it or what's happening. And I think if I can, yeah, I think if I, um, you know, I might not have had the experiences that my character had, but if I can connect to an emotion, then I feel I can write it authentically. And, um, you know, I think there is the main character here has a lot of distrust for the people around her. She doesn't know who might be telling the truth or who might be lying. And I like to um, kind of go into that the same as my main character, that I'm not sure 
that is, that's great. I'd never really actually connected those together before when thinking about whether right in third person, close or first person, because with first person, if you're walking into your writing space and you don't know what's going to happen, that can leak over into your character's mind too, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and end up on the page. Yeah. In, yeah. in terms, terms of their thoughts about where things are going. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Okay. So um, can't get away from the writing life segment without talking about structure because you have used some very um, inventive structures in your books. Um, you wrote one book backwards. <laughs> can you can you talk about that? Uh, yeah. is, that the one, is that is that the one that's on the wall behind you? Or no, no? that's all the missing girls one with the, okay. the uh, Ferris yeah. wheel. That was the my Ferris first. Yeah, okay, you, that was wrote, my first book for adults. You wrote, you wrote it in reverse, which means we're trying we're starting with the resolution and trying to go backwards to find how it got started. Is that? Is that the idea? Mostly. So there yeah. is the the mo- the biggest chunk of the book is told in reverse. Um, it there's a little bit of an introduction state that sets the stage um, of the main character going back home to um, as kind of a mystery is being unraveled, and um, then it goes to day fifteen and works its way back to day one. Um, and so it is told in reverse order by day. And I, I had the idea actually pretty early on when I was, it came kind of with the character. I had this idea that it would be an interesting way to explore character motivations that each day you're moving back in time, you're stripping another, away another layer of why something happened. Um, and so the mystery isn't just, you know, what happened, but the why and how we got there. And it tied very thematically into this character who is going back into the past for answers. She's trying to unravel what happened when her best friend disappeared when she was 18, 10 years earlier. And there's a new person who's gone missing now and their cases are linked by the same group of, the same group of friends. Um, And for me, I think structure is very important. And it's something I think about a lot when I'm writing, what's the right structure for a story. I think you can tell the same story five or 10 different ways and you reveal something different. So Um, It's really thinking about what I'm trying to reveal, what's the heart of the story, um, and what's the right structure for it. And sometimes it comes very early, like in All the Missing Girls, that was the idea from the start. Though it took a lot of, um, especially because I don't do a lot of plotting, it took a lot of trial and error to get there. Um, And sometimes it takes a lot longer. Um, The structure for The Last House Guest took me maybe four or five full drafts to get there before I figured out what was the right way for me to tell this story. So I'm still got my head. I'm not wrapped around this idea of writing backwards. I, do you do you start out with this idea of writing the story, and then you kind of flip it and then start editing, um, or do you just think in reverse? I mean, how'd you go back? Yeah, I wrote it in the order that it's read. Actually, yeah, you um, did. <laughs> yeah, I did, and I think it's because I don't see like I knew the backstory of what happened to these characters ten years earlier. And I think that was because I was coming at it from starting in young adult. So I knew, and that's, this was my first transition to adult fiction. And so what I had first in mind was the story of 10 years earlier when the characters were 18. Um, but I was writing it with this element of hindsight um, and obviously a new mystery in the present as well. And that's why it, that element of hindsight is what made me realize, well, this is an adult story. It's a different type of book. It's going to have a mystery in the present when the characters are closer to 30. Um, but it's still sort of at the core of the story about what happened when they were 18 and how that's affected them all going forward. And what I did was I, um, I kept running lists for each day. So I would have on day 15, you know, what the main character, what the narrator knows, and then a list for what the reader knows. And so the goal was to kind of walk the line between the two of those. So you weren't lying in any case and you weren't giving away too much and you were staying true to the story, but I wanted it. I wrote it in the order it's read because I still approach it character first. And I wanted you to get to know a character a certain way and get to know the relationships a certain way. Um, but you're right that sort of the inciting incident and the climax are sort of, um, inverted. Yeah. 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 But, but a lot of times, I mean, even in this book, the girl from Wooda Hills, um, you know, you find out a really cool twist at the end here. Um, if you had decided to reverse that and you started with that and went backwards, it might be interesting to know 
the why of that, you know, mm-hmm. and you could, you could explore that. So it's just different. So, okay. That's interesting. The, the way you do these different uh, structures, that's a lot to think about uh, <laughs> when you're writing a book. And, and I did notice uh, in, in your book, I look forward to reading that other book too in reverse. Um, um, I do notice that your books do have a lot of white space in there. You, you have shorter paragraphs, you keep, you know, you use dialogue to, to move the plot along. Is that sort of a hallmark of, of suspense to kind of keep, the pages moving, not to get paragraphs that are like, if you find yourself having written a paragraph that is about half a page, you go, wait a minute, I got to fix that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I do tend to do, um, I do a lot of cutting um, and streamlining as I go because I tend to try and dive into my character's mind and um, really take things further and think about the backstory and what's informed it. And then um, I think a lot with suspense and thrillers is what do we have to tell at this moment in time and how much can you hold back? And so I try to strip away to the essential so that you are still getting um, all of that important information, but that the story is still kind of propelling itself forward. All right. So we're going to get back uh, having done a little writing life there to, uh, to the story here that uh, everybody's going to want to go out and pick up because it's a quick read, a fast read. You're going to be uh, very surprised by the ending. You're going to be sort of wondering uh, throughout uh, what's going what's going on here uh, in this uh, woman's life and her mind and where, where things are going to take you. So we're getting to, uh, you know, every book has sort of, a, you know, all is lost or things are really changing and how's this main character going to get out of this problem? We're sort of getting to that point at this particular read and without giving away too much, uh, you know, you're going to read this part and, uh, but any setup here, because we're a little further along, maybe ground us a little bit in the reading here. Yeah. So this is, um, later on in the book, um, there've been a, a few reveals, um, that, um, have made the focus really fall back on, the main character during this investigation. And she's also realized that, you know, she has not been able to keep her past a secret anymore. And that has um, also kind of exacerbated, I think, why they're focusing on her. And she's been trying to um, help out with the investigation as much as possible. And this is sort of the moment where she realizes um, that she's in trouble. Everyone wanted the story, and oh, this was a good one. Proof of the dark side of humanity, of hidden pasts, of the mysteries buried at the heart of other people. Finally, I took out my cell, scrolling to Bennett's text. I found the information for his sister, Mackenzie Shaw. The cell rang until it went to her voicemail. Hi, my name is Olivia Meyer. I'm a friend of Bennett's, I began. I think I'm in trouble. I didn't leave my office again until the end of the day. Where was there left to go? I focused on my work, jumping with every ding of an email. My stomach sank when my boss's message came through. There was a single line. Is this true? With a link to some article below. It didn't matter whether the article was true. The fact that it existed was all that really counted. I read it despite myself, just so I could prepare, fight back, because that's all that could happen from here. This was the truth that currently existed, And so anything that came after would have to chip away at all that came before. Everyone wants to be part of the story. Sell your words, your friends, your soul. Watch what happens. Be careful. There's no going back. Observer Online, August 26, 2020. Posted 3.47 p.m. From national icon to person of interest, the girl from Widow Hills emerges 20 years later at the center of a murder investigation. (laughs) (laughs) Dum da da dum. That's right. So now, now uh, she's been running from her past, trying to hide from her past. Her past is catching up to her, and she doesn't know what's happened. And now she's the center of the investigation. And as a trial lawyer, for many years, I'm trying to think. You know, if I'm representing this person, how do you defend somebody that doesn't know, you know, what's happened? Right? They're being accused but they can't put the pieces together because they can't remember because they've been sleepwalking still. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And that's who Olivia is actually calling in this scene is her friend's sister who is a lawyer. 
um, and reaching out for help because she knows that, yeah, she's kind of reached the point where not only can she not trust the people around her, but she's questioning whether she can even trust herself and what she believes about herself. Yeah, that's great. Well, this is, uh, you know, all good uh, hours have to come to an end and, and we're up to that point. Uh, Megan, I want to thank you for, you know, appearing on the podcast and sharing this uh, story with us and your, and your work. You, you, your children have been very well behaved during this. <laughs> Are you sure they're working in, in the other I'm room? I'm no longer sure what's happening out <laughs> they, there. They probably figured this is break time. Mom, mommy's, right. got, mommy's got a call. So we'll, Oh, when she gets off the phone, we'll pretend like we're working again, right? Yeah. Right. I'll open the door and they'll be at yeah. their computers yeah. again. They'll be at, yeah. at their computers again. Uh, well, all, all the information is going to be in the show notes uh, with, about you and links to your books and that kind of information. CharlotteRearsPodcast.com. Uh, Megan, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker, and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.